family. Good to see you all. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Luke chapter 6 today. Luke chapter 6, that's in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Uh, you can turn there. If you're a guest, you can uh, download or go to uh, the, the internet. You look at Bible.com. They'll have free Bibles you can look at there. Um, man, what a beautiful day. So, how many of you guys are enjoying this weather right now, huh? Anybody? Yes, praise the Lord. Uh, I'm enjoying not sweating to death outside when I walk around. I feel like I have to take showers 15 times a day anymore, which is nice. I also want to give a shout out to uh, the guys who spend so much time making our property look the way it does. Uh, man, I, I don't. There's so much to go on behind the scenes. I just pulled up today, and the grass and everything looked absolutely beautiful. I don't know if you know this, we have roughly 20 acres of property, and it's all maintained maintained by people in the church who come up here week in, week out, give hours and hours of time to make sure it looks good. So I just want to give a shout out to those guys. Yeah. <coughs> And then you get lazy people like me that do nothing but preach on Sundays. I get the easy job. So, um, funny thing, Friday, I don't know if any of you guys are state fair people. My, my family is. Every time I go, they're all excited. Then I get there and go, why did I waste money on this? Uh, and that's how it goes every time. I pay money to eat food that costs more money than I should ever pay for food. Uh, but Friday, we took our family there. And one of our favorite things to do is to go look at the auto show. We like to go sit and check out the new cars and dream about stuff we will never own. Um, and my girls have gotten into it. I have two daughters, 12 and uh, 8, and they, they enjoy going to it, and they enjoy going sit behind the wheels and, and just kind of uh, dream. Uh, my oldest daughter is getting at the age now where she's starting to dream about owning a car. So she went and sat behind every truck and said, I want this one, I want this one. And I said, this costs more than my first house, okay? You're not getting this one. Well, you know, all upset because, you know, she dreamed about it. And I told her, I was like, you know, uh, when you turn 16, you're going to be happy with a car that runs. I can promise you that. That's all you will care about. You will not care as much about it. I don't know if you remember growing up being that age where you start to get to where you're 16 years old, getting your license. Anybody remember that? The freedom, the joy that came from it. Your first car. Do you remember that? Do you remember getting your driver's license or first car? I don't mean to be rude. Some of you got to go way back to that. Some of you are still looking forward to that. Some of you don't know what that is. It's all good. I remember turning 16 for me, getting my driver's license so ready to have a car and have the freedom to just enjoy this amazing gift. And on my 16th birthday, came back from a Christian leadership camp called Super Summer, which is an exhausting camp. I was tired. Little did I know, uh, when we came back, the day of was uh, June 6th, my birthday, and my parents threw a surprise birthday party for me. And so all my friends, who were also my church friends, came with us. We all just got back from camp, came to my party, and there we are sleeping on the table because we're so exhausted from camp trying to enjoy this party. And I had one gift. I had no idea what it was. And I opened this tiny box, and I opened up a set of keys with a Mustang emblem on it. See, my dream car growing up was a classic Mustang. I, had, I always wanted one. Thinking I'd never be able to get one. And my parents had surprised me, and uh, when I went outside, there was a classic 66 Mustang sitting out there that was mine that needed a lot of work, <laughs> but it was mine. And I remember having that, that bad boy and just sitting in it for hours and hours on end, just taking in the smells, enjoying it. I mean, I, I, I would just sit and enjoy having that. Um, it, it's amazing the joy, the freedom, the gift that comes from driving, right? It's something we look forward to, something we can't wait for. I bring that up because it's interesting. Last week we had Todd Fisher, who is the executive director for the Baptist Convention of Oklahoma, and uh, got the gift. Uh, Emily and I got to go and have lunch with him and his wife afterwards. 
And, and interesting, in small talk conversation, because he, he helps with Fall Creek and does some of that as well, and he says, you know, it's interesting, we have trouble, the biggest issue we have when hiring Falls Creek staff, which are uh, college age or people who just graduated high school age people, he said, you know what the biggest challenge we have? I said, what's that? He said, most or many of them don't have a driver's license. And I said, really? And he said, now here, here's the amazing thing about it. He said, do you want to know what the main reason of why they don't? And I said, too expensive? <laughs> I don't know, maybe they failed the test. And here, here's what he said. The main reason they don't have drivers like this, it comes from a fear of driving. Is that not crazy? Like, I could not turn 16 fast enough to get my license, right? I, I didn't care what, I, I was ready to get, I was so looking forward to this gift, this blessing, this joy, th this freedom I have. And yet nowadays there's a culture growing up of a fear of driving, a fear of this gift. But my question is this, what happens when something meant to be a gift or blessing is viewed as a burden. What happens when something that meant to bring freedom, bring joy, bring a gift to us instead feels like a burden? I bring it up when you say, how's this tie up to serious? Because in the same breath, some people view the Sabbath in the same way. See, God has gifted us with a gift of rest to enjoy, to enjoy the freedoms he has, for us to enjoy being fully human. And yet, for many of us, when it comes to Sabbath, we find it be a burden. We feel it's wearisome. We feel exhausting. We feel like something that, man, I just really don't want to do this. When I say Sabbath in a sense, I mean a day of resting, of just stopping and enjoying not being God and allowing God to be God. And we struggle with that. We struggle with that. The series we've been going through is called Redeeming Rest. has been trying to unpack for you all what does the Bible say about rest, why it's important, why you should apply it, and what it should look like when you're doing it right. Because if you're like me forever, I thought the Sabbath was just making sure you went to church on Sunday morning. And my life was drastically changed in many ways. My first church I served at, where we didn't have Sunday night service. And I thought that was so sacrilegious. How can you not have Sunday night service? Surely in the Bible it says somewhere, thou should have seventh Sunday night service. I couldn't find it anywhere. And we did it, and we stayed at home. And me and my wife just sat and rested, just like, man, there's something uh, just being that we realized we were missing out on. Something that God was gifting with us. And so we're answering that question, like, what, what if rest is a burden? How do we overcome that? What's wrong in our thinking? And the answer, we're going to see in Luke chapter 6, which serves as our big idea, is this. Our rest is a gift that can only be found in Jesus. You see, when it comes to rest, if there's a reason you have trouble enjoying it, or if there's a reason for you why it feels like a burden, maybe you're viewing it wrong, maybe you're doing it wrong, or, or maybe here's something, maybe something's missing that's vital in your life. And I want you to see that in Luke chapter 6 today as we look at the text. So hopefully, I've given you enough time to get there. In Luke chapter 6, we're going to pick up, and this is right early on in Jesus' ministry. He's starting to make a wake into who he is. Early on, often Jesus would say, keep quiet, don't tell people who I am. He'd do his miracles kind of incognito and say, don't tell people. And slowly, he begins to unveil, pull back the curtain to who he is and what he's about. And Luke 6 is one of those things that you just can't really hide anymore. So, follow along with me. It says, on a Sabbath, he, being Jesus, passed through the grain fields. And his disciples were picking heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating them. But some of the Pharisees says, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, haven't you read what David and those who were uh, with him did when he was hungry? 
Like how we entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. Yet he even gave some to those who were with him. Then he told them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man whose right hand was shriveled was there. And scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so they could find a charge against him. But he knew their thoughts and told the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand here. So he got up and stood there. And when Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he told him, stretch out your hand. And he did, and his hand was restored. They, however, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. What an interesting text. Now, now I need to understand something. When you read... uh, Literature, often in the Bible, it's more focused on telling a story than anything else. Luke is trying to tell the story from his perspective of who Jesus is. Now, granted, for Luke, Luke is the most detailed of all four Gospels. The four Gospels are telling from different perspectives of who Jesus is. If I sat and asked you, said, hey, I need some people to write a biography about Eric's life, and I would ask one of you as a congregant, say, I would ask Grant as a staff member who works for me, if I were to ask one of my kids to do it, and I would ask someone that I grew up from high school with, that they will write maybe four almost completely different stories, but it's about the same person, but it's all from their perspective, Right? And that's what Luke is. Luke is writing from perspective, uh, and, and he gives a lot of details of what's going on. And I tell you this because he's making a point with the Sabbath in connection to Jesus, because you can see he tells two stories back to back. These obviously do not happen right next to each other. It says on one Sabbath this happened, then it says in verse 6, on another Sabbath. He's trying to make a point about what Jesus is doing on this Sabbath day. And Jesus is showing us something about rest in this and how it's meant to be a gift to God. And here's what I want to teach you through as I unpack that point. How do we enjoy rest as the gift it's intended to be? Well, look at verse 1 through 5. The first thing I want you to look at is this. How do we enjoy the rest as a gift it's intended to be? Is first and foremost, we have to look for the purpose, not just the rules. We have to look into the purpose, not just the rules. Look at verse 1 through 5. It says, on a Sabbath, he passed through a grain field, and his disciples were picking up heads of grain, rubbing their hands, and eating. In other words, his disciples were starving for food. They didn't have anything. When they were walking through, they'd take wheat. You would rub it to break it up. And when they do it, through the friction and the heat, it would make almost like a paste or like a dough-like substance. And you'd sit and chew on it, and it would give you enough nutrients to make it by, if you will. They're literally just grazing as they go. And, and for whatever reason, you have these Pharisees that see them, and they're trying to tie it back to work. They're, they're literally like saying, hey, listen, listen, they're harvesting, they're threshing, they're cooking a full course meal. I mean, can you imagine being told that when you see that? I wish I got blamed for stuff like that. Where I did the bare minimum, like, Eric, man, you're working hard there. Yeah, I'm just making some stuff here. That's all it is. I do it with my family all the time when it comes time to cook meals. I'll say, you know what, I'm going to cook a meal, and I'll jump in my car, run to McDonald's, come back, and I'll tell them, hey, do you guys enjoy what Dad made? And they're like, you didn't make it. I'm like, I made it happen, didn't I? Okay. I get credit. It counts. It counts. Jesus and his disciples are being accused here because of something that seems obscure. Even more interesting to me is these Pharisees are on high alert. They're obviously looking for him. They're trying to catch Jesus in the act. It's less clear in this as as you see later in verse 6. How do we know this? Jesus and his disciples are walking through fields as they're going, grabbing and making it. And where are the Pharisees? How do they know this information? They're following them and watching every step of what they do. 
They're trying to catch him in the act. Now, what's interesting is what they say. They said, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They made me ask, like, was this actual a biblical command? Does, does God actually tell them they can't do this? We do know from other texts it tells them that in, in, in the Sabbath they're not supposed to work at all, but as far as what they're doing, they're actually told they can do it. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25. It says this, it says, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck heads of grain with your hands, but do not put a sickle to your neighbor's grain. It tells them it's okay to walk through fields and grab as they are. And Jesus even begins to call it out. And you'll see what he talks about with David. And so the question is, well, if this isn't an actual command anywhere in Scripture, where are they getting this? Where did they get this command to tell Jesus this is wrong? The answer is, it's not in Scripture. It's in what's called Pharisaical law. In other words, what happened is you had the Bible in the Old Testament told them how to live, and out of concern and fear of disobeying that law, they added extra hedges of protection around that. In other words, more rules and more laws to ensure they would not even come close to the edge. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees developed a system, listen to this, of 613 additional laws on top of what you have in Scripture. 200 or 365 of which were negative commands, 248 which were positive commands, if you will. All that was beyond what was in the scope of Scripture. In other words, think about this. The Pharisees were so concerned with falling short of God's standards that they completely neglected and missed on, on how to live in God's standards. And in other words, they were so fearful to get a license, they said, I'd rather not have one. And they're missing out on the joy and the blessing of what God intended Sabbath to be. And so Jesus, how does he respond? Jesus always has so much wisdom and knowledge in how he responds. He comes to him and he says, well, what about David? You guys all idolize King David. He's your hero. What did he do? He says, look to him. You know, now he co- quotes a story from 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 3 through 6, where Jesus is fleeing Saul, a king who is trying to kill him. And I'm just going to read that text real to, to you, so you know, because he says, you know the story, and if you don't know the story, then you're not really understanding where he's going. And so David's fleeing, and listen to what it says. David comes to uh, a priest, and he says, now what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread of whatever can be found. And the priest told him, says, there's no ordinary bread on hand. However, there is consecrated bread, but the young men may not eat it, only if they have kept themselves from women. And David answered, I swear that women are being kept from us as always when I go out to battle. The young men's bodies are consecrated even on an ordinary mission. So, of course, their bodies are consecrated there. So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from the presence of the Lord. When the bread was removed, it had been replaced with warm bread. You may not know what that is, but they would offer bread to God as a sacrifice to him in his place at the temple for him to have. This belonged to God. David and his men are starving. They're kind of like, dude, do you have anything to eat? And he's like, well, all we have is the Lord's bread. And he gives it to him. Imagine if someone walked in our door and we're like, we don't have anything. All we got is Lord's supper cups. No one really enjoys it, but that might give you something. And I begin to give it to him and start eating and chugging. Some people would be upset, like, that's so sacrilegious that belongs to the Lord. But I would say, if someone's starving, listen, I'm going to make sure they're taken care of in some way, shape, or form. Why, why did Scripture not condemn David? He's trying to point that out. Like, listen, no one griped at David when he did this. Why did no one do this? Because David was meeting a human need. He was meeting a human need. And they saw that as more important at the moment. And what Jesus is saying in verse 5 when he says, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying this. Listen, 
He's saying if Jesus is greater than David, then can't he set aside pharisaical law for human need? If this isn't a direct command of God, but yet this is a need right here, can I not have the same right? In other words, understand this. He's saying this. Sabbath is not a set of rigid man-made rules. Don't make following God more difficult than it has to be. How often do we come to church and we establish rules that are nowhere found in Scripture? And we make following God so much more difficult and we miss the intent of what God's trying to say. And suddenly God seems like a killjoy and God seems like he's just slaving us to death when that's not what Scripture shows. I love what one person once said. Listen, where Scripture is silent, be silent. And where Scripture speaks, speak. And in other words, when the Bible says something, we need to be obedient to it. But if it's silent, don't add more. Just add a hedge of protection around yourself and make it more difficult and rigid to follow. I, I think in my own life with this, when I served at a small church up in Afton by Grand Lake, and we're up there serving, and we had a rocking kids ministry going on, on Wednesday night. We had over 100 kids coming to this China church, tiny church where we ran 60 on Sunday morning. And it was amazing. And a lot of it because we fed kids. We had a food ministry, and kids were coming up. That was one of the main meals they got. And we were getting so full, we didn't have room in our family life center, but we had room upstairs. And we're ready to move them upstairs, and me and the pastor are like, okay, we have plans. We've, we've decked out this room. But some of our deacons came and told us, says, you can't told, do that. Insurance told us that if you take kids from fifth grade and down upstairs, they will not cover them under our insurance. We said, that sounds crazy. And so for a year, we constantly just made ends meet by this thing. Man, this is such a weird rule. Why would they do this? What, what is the insurance company thinking? Constantly being told over and over, this is the standard of the insurance company. Finally, my pastor David got so frustrated, he called the insurance company and says, you got to explain this to me because this makes no sense at all. We have beautiful space upstairs. We have a need. Why won't you let us take the kids up there? And the insurance guy says this, take them up there. We go, what? He goes, I don't know what you're talking about. We've never said that. We said, what do you mean? They've been telling us this is the rule. And he said, that's an absurd rule. And we go, that's what we said. And so we went and talked to these deacons and said, how come we couldn't go? Their response is, well, that's what they told us. And I can never figure out who the they family is. And every church I go, there's a they family somewhere, right? They this, they that. The reality is, listen, we were so concerned about getting sued over something obscure that we added more to the rules that were ever there and made it so difficult for us to live and do ministry. Look for purpose, not just the rules. There's wisdom in all of God's word, and God has intent in what he's saying. Can I tell you real quick, listen, there are two things God doesn't want from us. One is this, listen, careless worship. What, what do I mean? That? It's when we have no attention to what God says. And we begin to manufacture for ourselves what we want the Bible to say. And we begin to say, I believe this, I believe this. And yet we can go nowhere in Scripture and point to where it actually says that. And churches are chasing that because they're facing the whims and fancies of the world that says what is nice. God does not care for careless worship. He wants us to be diligent to what he says. But at the same time, don't miss this, God does not want us to have mindless worship either. Where even though we know what it says, we don't know why it says it. Why in the world would God say there's a day of rest? I want you to stop. Here's the, stop. This is what I want you to do. God, God wants us to care about the what and the why. I love there's a guy named Barclay that said this. He said it's po- it is possible to read scripture meticulously, to, to know the Bible inside and out from cover to cover, to be able to quote it verbatim and to pass any examination on it and yet completely miss the meaning. People do it all the time. 
why does God say this? He's trying to get, listen, don't miss people's needs. The Sabbath was about the needs of man and caring for their needs. It was made for man, he would say. And yet they're adding dutiful laws that make it extremely difficult for them. Look for the purpose, not just the uh, rules. The second thing in verse 6 to 10 I see is this. Not only do you not just need to look for the purpose of the rules, but you also see this. Don't create rules at the expense of human welfare. Look at verse 6 to 10. He gives another situation. He says, on another Sabbath, he entered synagogue, and he was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. Luke gives details like this to give you insight to what's going on. Being his right hand, that was a predominant hand. This is what they believe every person was supposed to use, the predominant hand. A left hand was seen as unclean, unwise, and unuseful. So this man had already chip stacked against him. The fact that his hand was withered gave us the idea that there's probably no muscle or anything developed. This has probably been from entire life or from a long time this has been going on with this man. And he's there. And what's interesting is what do we see? We see these uh, Pharisees up to their old acts again. It said, a man was there whose right hand was shriveled in verse 7. And the scribes and Pharisees, what were they doing? They were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath that they could what? Find a charge against him. It, it makes me wonder. It doesn't tell us this. It makes me wonder, did they stage this and set this up? Did they tell this man whose entire life, man, I wish I could just be healed of this, said, hey, come, there's this guy here that could probably heal you on a Sunday morning if you'd come to church and do it. Knowing Jesus and who he is, and they come and they watch the whole time wondering if they could catch this guy and catch him in the act. And what's interesting, Jesus knows it. Look at verse 8. It says, he knew their thoughts and told the shriveled man, get up here and stand here. Now, now what I don't know is this. How did Jesus know their thoughts? I think it's either one or two things. Either one, their plot was so blatant and obvious that he knew. Everyone in the room knew what was going on. Or it could be Jesus in his divine nature, being the Son of God, fully God, fully man in this place, knowing and literally being able to comprehend their thoughts. That's not foreign because we see him do it with Philip when Philip is talking to God behind the tree. And when he calls him to him, he says, I heard you by the tree as you were talking to God. He was able to comprehend his thoughts and what was going on in that situation. I don't know what it is, but regardless, regardless of what's going on here, Jesus chooses to make a point out of it. Rather than heal the man in obscurity, what does he do? Hey, come up here. I want you to come up right here on stage. I want you to stand right here. Hey, everyone look at this guy right here. He doesn't hide from it. He exploits it and brings it up. And Jesus, doing what he does, is trying to get attention. Look at verse 9. Then Jesus said to them, who's the them? Is he talking to the guy? The crowd in the room? He's talking to the Pharisees. Like, like, don't miss this. Like, Jesus, even though we make the Pharisees out to be the bad guy, is still trying to minister them, still trying to get their attention, still has love for these people that are trying to catch them in the act. And what does he says? He says, look at this man. He tries to get their attention. He says, you tell me. I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? You see, one of those hedges of protections Pharisees had is they believed healing was okay if it was life-threatening. But if it wasn't life-threatening, it could wait for another day. So, so literally, this man, is it killing this guy that his hand is still shriveled for one more day? It won't kill him, so you know what? He can wait till Monday. He can wait till, so he can wait till another day, but not today. This belongs to the Lord. Can we just stop and talk about how foolish that is right there? And Jesus is calling out, like, you're completely missing what the Sabbath is. You're missing and calling this work when God is trying to heal what's going on. So he brings them in and out. He says, after looking around at them all, he said, stretch out your hand. 
And he did, and his hand was restored. And how they respond, it says this in verse 11. They, however, were filled with rage. They started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. This word rage, it means senseless rage. Irrational. They're so angry, they're not even thinking clear. They're not hearing anything we said. They completely missed the message and the opportunity Jesus is trying to get through their head. Because they're so stuck on the rules at the expense of this man. They don't get it. Well, I understand this. Listen, when it comes to the Sabbath, it's a gift of God. But here's the thing. Sabbath is for our welfare, not done at our expense. Is it ever okay to run a red light? No, it's not, right? Well, what about this? What if you're stuck at a red light and you're sitting there and a semi-truck is coming at you and you can tell it's not slamming on the brakes, it's not slowing down. What are you going to do in your wisdom? You're going to run that dead again red light and get out of the way, right? And when a police officer pulls you over, you're going to say, listen, I don't care what you say. That semi was coming right at me. Listen, is it okay to break the law in that situation? Of course, why? Because your life is at stake. It's less important that you obey that particular law in that moment because your life is at greater need than that law. And Jesus is trying to get them to get this. Like, don't miss it. Your welfare is the purpose, the point behind it. And when it's costing your welfare, then you're missing the intent of the law. And it's not done at your expense. It's done for your benefit. It's done for your benefit. Human welfare is always greater than law. I'll never forget being a student minister here one of my first few years. We were always pushing kids how important it was to come to Wednesday night, be a part of our youth, to constantly be meeting together. And we had one student who was a leader, came all the time, and Wednesday night, man, he, he, he was gone. He wasn't there. And it was, I knew he was supposed to be there. And later up, I called this kid and said, hey, what happened? I missed you. And he's just, man, just so fraught, so frustrated. He said, man, I'm so sorry. Man, I, I, will you please forgive me for missing? I said, yeah, what happened? He said, well, I got stuck later with practice, and I had one of the kids on my team who I've been trying to talk him to come to church. And we sat, and I began to, he began to ask me about Jesus, and I shared the gospel, and he prayed to receive Christ. I said, that's amazing. He goes, I'm so sorry for missing church. I said, who cares? Are you kidding me? This kid got led to Christ because of what you did. It's sad to me this student was so caught up that I would be angry that he missed church and possibly miss the opportunity of sharing someone the gospel. And I tell him, listen, you're, you're missing the whole purpose of what's going on here. Do you need to be here? Yes, it's important. Scripture makes it clear we do not need to neglect meeting together. That's so important. But, but, but human welfare and what you have here is so much more. Don't create rules at the expense of human welfare. The last thing is this, how do we enjoy the rest as the gift it's intended to be? It actually comes from verse 5, it's this. Jesus has to be a part of it for it to be a gift. In other words, you can never enjoy the Sabbath. You can never enjoy rest, absence of Jesus Christ. You say, where do you get that from? Well, look what he says in verse 5. He said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Son of man was a term used in the Old Testament to describe both the humanity of mankind. You see in Psalms chapter 8, just about how we are human. He's like, I, I am human just like you. But it also was a divine prophecy of the Messiah coming. You see in Daniel 7, pointing to it. About someday the Son of God would come, the Son of man. He's talking about, listen, I who come in flesh and blood, the, the living God here on earth, am God of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. What, what, what does that mean? Why, why is that? How is Jesus Lord of the Sabbath? It means this, what he's saying. He has authority over it. God has given him authority over the Sabbath and what it means to rest. It's his to have, it's his to give, and it's his to rule over. He 
makes the rules. He decides how it's done, how it's enjoyed, how it's taken care of. So, so in other words, for us, if you don't know Jesus, you will never be able to enjoy the Sabbath. How can you enjoy something when you don't talk to the person who tells you how to enjoy it? You never will. You'll constantly try to make it up or assume from other people. You will never be able to enjoy it without knowing Jesus Christ. Even more so, listen, you can never enjoy the Sabbath if you don't have Jesus. Because Jesus paid the price for all my shortcomings. Jesus was perfect, so I don't have to be perfect. Jesus obeyed the law so that all my shortcomings are taken care of. And without him, you cannot enjoy it. And so let me say it like this. If rest feels like a burden, you might not know Jesus, or even more so, you might not have Jesus. And so if, if this thing for you feels exhausting, and you come to the end of each week saying, I just, I don't have the energy, and you don't know how to stop, you don't know how to enjoy just letting God be God. You don't know how to let go of the fact that maybe your bills aren't working out quite like they are, your job's not working out, your marriage or whatever it is is not panning out like you want, and you just think, I can't rest from these situations. I can't stop. How do I stop? It's most likely could come from a point where you don't know who Jesus is because he says, seek after me, seeking first my reach and uh, his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be taken care of, added to you. Or it could be you don't have the source that brings rest and joy. And so my closing question is this, do you want to enjoy the gift of Jesus today? And with Jesus comes rest. So some of you are trying to pursue rest without Jesus, and you're going to find it exhausting. Because it's going to be built on man-made rules that will never live up. And you'll find yourself fall short. Or you will find joy and rest in things that someday will let you down. Man, my, my, my finances are doing great right now. And then suddenly that all gets sucked away. What happens to your rest then? The things that you thought were consistent suddenly become inconsistent. And what happens when we place our faith into the steady and consistent sovereign son of God? I don't have to worry about the ebbs and flows of life because I can constantly trust he will always stay true and steady. Is, is rest hard for you? Today, I'd, I'd love for you to respond to that. Grant and the worship team are going to come up and, and lead us in a time of worship and reflection, but I'm, I'm going to ask you to respond to that. If you seriously struggle with rest, what's stopping you from doing it today? Do you know Jesus? More so, do you have Jesus? Because you can't enjoy this gift without him. So I'm going to ask if you just close your eyes and spend a second with God and just talk to him. Ask him to expose your heart what's going on. Ask him right now, God, can I, have I really found rest? Have I really enjoyed rest? And if you find that answer to be no, ask him this, why? If you claim to be a child of God and you have come to some point in your life where you have asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, you've acknowledged that you have fallen short of God's glory standards and that you cannot fix yourself, but Jesus, through the death and sacrifice on the cross, has made it right for you. And you've come to acknowledge your need for him and ask him to be your Lord and Savior. If you know you've done that, then I encourage you. I encourage you to ask Jesus, like, listen, am I living in standards you've asked me to live in? 
But if you don't know you've done that, listen, today, let this be the day that you come and find rest in who God is and enjoy the benefits of being a child of God. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross to save you to heaven, but to save you to a relationship that will be fulfilled in fullness in heaven someday. But you get to enjoy it right now. The choice is yours. So as our elders and leaders make their way around the room for you to respond, if you need someone to pray for you, encourage you, to lead you through that decision. After I pray, if you feel led to that, go talk to them. Allow them to walk you through that. Leave here today finding the joy and rest of God. Father God, I love you so much. And God, it burns my heart how many people in this room, including myself in the past, I know, have not enjoyed resting in you because something's been missing in our life. God, we're no different than those kids who don't want to get a driver's license because of fear of what it would be to to, to actually embrace you. So God, I pray today for conviction to respond, confidence to respond, opportunities to respond. I pray that someone would have the courage to get up and talk to one of our leaders and say, "I, I want that rest today. I thank you for not burning us with more than what Shifter says. God, I pray we'd leave here people so relaxed and so full of joy that the world stands on attention and says, what do you have that we don't? And we can point them to you. I love you and praise you. Jesus, I pray. Amen. We're going to worship, and I just encourage you during that time, if, if God's stirring your heart, you need someone to pray for you. It could, it could have been nothing I preached about today. Maybe something else has been on your heart today, and you've been so distracted by that today, you just need someone to pray for you. That's okay. If you need that, we got leaders in the back. We got elders up here and myself. You come and talk to one of us. We'd love to pray for you. Or maybe you were convicted and you're not sure if you have Jesus and today's the day that you say, I need, I need to have confidence in my salvation. Come and talk to one of us. I pray that you do that. But I'm just going to challenge your response. I'm going to ask you to stand and let's worship to God.